This evening's talk is about kama, or maybe a word you're more familiar with in Sanskrit, karma, and beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages over the years as I began to connect more and more deeply with the understanding and the teaching of Kama. And this is that this teaching offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. It turns out that kama isn't some unreachable or strange concept. And as a Western woman, and I think that I can pretty safely say this for most of us, women and men, who have been brought up and conditioned as Westerners, that it's been a kind of a relief to discover this. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that somehow it may elude our complicated minds. So what is it? What is kama? Etymologically, the root of the word kama is action or deed. In the context of the dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of saying this is action based on motivation, which is primarily the way the Tibetan Buddhists talk about it, using the word motivation. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddha's teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. 
intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of kama. And from the Buddha, monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, intention, leads us to choose or to act or speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome karma. An unwholesome intention is unwholesome karma. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life gets clarified. The Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've come to understand by way of my own practice to be quite amazing and illuminating. It is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as, I did that intentionally, or is that really what you meant to say, that sort of thing. 
The Buddha's teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thought, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the heart, to the various sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, ear, tongue, body, mind, and nose, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses the objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. Intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the heart, the mind, responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience. That intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind, which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. And it's possible to actually experience this process occurring with mindful awareness by the power of the strength of access concentration. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation of intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit, is what determines the results of our action. So, again, basically this is the teaching of cause and effect, or cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle is the energy, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about some subsequent result. In light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. If this speck speck is practiced repeatedly 
over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions. The result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits. And even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical features and expressions, as well as in the form of various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware and repeatedly acting out or practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like this. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. A Theravada way of saying this is, Everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive intention, kama, doesn't have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once getting a note that wasn't very pleasing to me at all when I was sitting a retreat a number of years ago. And I proceeded to quite angrily tear up this piece of paper that the note was written on. And even though the piece of paper itself had absolutely no importance, the action certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this more recently, I was cleaning off my desk at home. And with a neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away a piece of scrap paper. That action producing a very different effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effect of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the wheel of dependent origination, or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. In light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Buddhist scholar, Venerable Paiuto.
He's a Thai Buddhist scholar. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will begin to seem dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may seem to make the floor dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle, on a spectacle lens, is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, akama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, Previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I uh, offered in the talk that I gave at the very beginning of this month. These suttas take place in uh, in the uh, forest where various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in these same woodland thickets. So I'd like to, again, share uh, one of these same short dialogues as an illustration of what we're exploring at the moment, just a part of one of these same dialogues. And this is the verse about uh, a bhikkhu, a monk, who, after returning from his daily alms round and then eating his meal in this same woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And when the deva who lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu, instead of meditating on the, instead of meditating, instead is meditating on the scent of flowers. And then she went on thinking, if his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. 
Let me draw near and reproach him, she said. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu, the monk, responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil, appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born. We could say we spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control of it. And yet, it remains with us, and in some way, inevitably returns to us as what could be called our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say, with everything that happens, and the resultant ease or dis-ease in the mind, in the heart, that this is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the external and internal happenings. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, our wholesome and unwholesome responses or reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness, or dis-ease 
and suffering is due to the motivations, intentions, and subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech, not due to our wishes or our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer or seemingly antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how they unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in this knowing, we can and do, actually, actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own heart, our own mind, what is there to fear? the heart, the mind, begins to relax. We begin to know that, in fact, we can change our mind. We begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. 
It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint or clay or marble or music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, heart, and body. And the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding. Knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in this knowing, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. (coughs) The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up as our beliefs, our preferences, which are are what direct our motivation, our intentions, and the resultant thought which potentially then flow out into words and into actions. So, simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings, and things, and even situations, experiences, and places, being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging. We're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance, what is called wrong view in the Buddha's teachings. Ignorance, ignoring the truth of things. With this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if we're growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, 
all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that, in fact, the causes and conditions themselves are also always in flux. That nothing, no thing, abides independently or separately or is static. Our intentions, our motivations, come out of understanding the truth of the way of things, come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. One aspect of this, uh, which is what we, uh, what we call self, which is usually um, referenced uh, as this body, or very often referenced as this body as self, is actually a process made up of many elements, with all of them being in continual flux. These essential four elements are the earth element, which we know experientially as the experience of hardness or roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The element, the water element, which we experientially know as flowing, cohesion. And the fire element, which we experientially know as heat, or warmth, coolness, coldness, and the wind element, or the air element, which we know experientially as supporting and pushing. This process of this body as self, actually being known in its elemental nature. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within this essentially impersonal process, Our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, and some seeds are dormant for many years, maybe many lifetimes, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. And a classical metaphor that's often used for this is apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. 
A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. And an angry or hateful act produces angry or hateful fruit. No self, impersonality, another way of saying no self. Behind our actions doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. So we need to couple our understanding of selflessness with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their comic fruit. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. Monks or yogis, when there is wrong fruit, bodily kama created as a result of, excuse me, (laughs) when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in in moist earth. The soil and water taken taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. Yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, and conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. When we begin to understand more deeply that karma is based on intention, motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, 
we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And a few words from Padmasambhava, who's said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. He said, though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of karma should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act and awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed has the effect of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and to transform our heart and mind and our actions. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, that it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world, say, with aggression or anger or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in this moment. So for instance, the appropriate, healthy, and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, a certain kind of refuge, a refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent, it's a long list, where all of this can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thought, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart and mind, is a very, very good deed, really the best.
and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One thing that's been important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. It becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good. As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart and mind, the mind and heart become more and more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength through our practice of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties as our practice goes on and in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds maybe brings us some sorrow or maybe some discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us or maybe through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not at all be what we expected, not what we had in mind, results that seem maybe contrary to what we might think our intention, our motivation was. Many years ago, uh, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately, say for me at appropriate times in my work with her, she would say for me, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, a very close look at my motivations and expectations. And most importantly in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring, with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. And maybe sometimes a kind of stern and in a certain way maybe a demanding teacher. Yet potentially a truthful and well-intentioned friend. 
we learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realms of suffering. And in light of this, I'd like to read uh, a few passages from uh, a book called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucieran. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not, as all, not at all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see, yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation, for at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident, and there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely not at things, but at a, at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within, but radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that this was not magic for me at all, but reality, 
I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there was, there's no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If, instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, If I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly, because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes, and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once, a black hole opened, and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence, and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he's rewarded, for everything comes his way.
closing this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, therefore, one should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And as the Buddha tells us, it is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.